Welcome to Defining Endurance, a podcast focused on providing actionable insights for endurance athletes. Whether you're an athlete just getting started in endurance sports or a veteran looking to gain an edge, the Defining Endurance podcast is here to ask curious questions with athletes and fitness professionals, and most importantly, dive deep on current training topics so you can become the best version of yourself. Let us wait no longer. Let's dive into this week's episode. All right, guys, welcome back or welcome to the Defining Endurance podcast. I am your host, Coach Andrew Simmons from Lifelong Endurance. And if you guys are joining us on YouTube, you guys can see that we've got some new background and new digs here. Uh, I'm in the office today, uh, sitting down for a couple episodes. And my guest today is Marco Altini. Uh, he is the founder, didn't want me to call him the CEO, wanted me to call him the founder <laughs> of HRV for Training. Uh, and we're actually going to dive into something that I think uh, everybody's kind of seen a little bit. This idea of HRV or heart rate variability. But before we get into what it is and all that it is, I'm going to let my guest take a chance to introduce himself. He's joining us all the way from Italy. So Marco, thanks for hopping in today. Thank you, Andrea. Pleasure to be here. Um, quick background. I have a, a background, let's say, in between sports science and technology. So I have degrees in computer science and engineering a PhD in data science, another degree in uh, human movement sciences and high performance coaching. Um, so yeah, I would say I've been uh, playing with this kind of technology and wearables and tools to measure things from the body, typically cardiac activity and therefore heart rate, heart rate variability, and then trying to build tools for people to use uh, to try to capture and interpret that data that I think we'll discuss more later today. Absolutely. You know, when it comes down to it, I think the, uh, I sat down with Dirk Friel from Training Peaks. And one of the big things we talked about earlier this year was the idea that where is the idea of data science and all that we're doing as humans in the performance space, where is that moving? And, I, and, and what he said was, I think it's moving to wearables. I think it's moving to things that we physically wear with us all the time. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm always wearing a Garmin watch. Uh, we can talk about the uh, validity of wrist heart rate versus chest heart rate <laughs> straps at a, on a different day. But the reality is, is that now we, almost all of us that run, cycle, or swim we're wearing some sort of device all the time. That's that's the wearable technology. So whether it's something like, you know, an Apple Watch, a Garmin Watch, even a Fitbit, those are all considered wearables. Um, and so, you know, we've seen everything. I don't have one on. I just have my regular wedding ring. But we've seen Aura rings. We've seen Whoops. Um, you know, is this is from your standpoint? Is this the future of you know, uh, data capture when it comes to sports and performance? I think there is a place for it. Um, we can do it in different ways, depending on what we are interested in. Um, it could be measurements taken in certain specific parts of the day, which still can allow us to capture, um, I would say, most of the picture that you can capture by wearing something even the whole time, because by going to a very specific time point in the day, think about first thing in the morning or the night, Often you can assess something that is, let's say, more stable and not confounded by everything else that happens during the day. Um, we wear wearables all the time, but at the same time, these devices, uh, despite trying to get a bit smarter over time, 
they still have very little of the context, right? So they do not know exactly what is happening, what is going on in your day, what kind of stressors are you facing, what kind of activities are you doing. But this, I think, all sort of challenges still that uh, makes it so that it's going to be a long way before wearing all this data all the time will allow us to gather more insights. Um, but I think we've made a lot of progress in the past I would say five, 10 years going from not having any way to measure physiology that was convenient outside of the lab to now being able to track many of these parameters, um, which of course brought a lot of confusion, which we will try to clarify a bit today. But at the same time, I think opens um, quite a few opportunities uh, in ways we can capture and use this data to better understand how the body is responding, for example, to training and other stressors. Yeah, I think that's been the the biggest hurdle for a lot of my athletes over the years is that we can, you know, you can get a nutritionist, you know, you can get a lot of sleep, but one of the things that you can't control, right, is is and I've always used the analogy of a bucket. You know, this bucket is your energy and you know, your stress, when stress is applied, that bucket tends to kind of over overfill. And our body sees stress in one direction. This is a, a, a working theory that I have that if you are stressed out and you are experiencing, whether that's work stress, life stress from you know other people around you, you're not going to perform. You can't expect your body to perform at its very best, even though it's not, it's not like you're going out for an extra run or something inside that day. It's just our bodies experience stress and that demand, although not something that we can identify as physical, like sweating, right? We're not sweating because we're stressing in most situations, but it puts our body under a certain amount of duress to experience those things. And that shows up somewhere. And I think I can think back to the first times using a heart rate monitor. Um, I would say, wow, I had a stressful day today. It was really crazy. I had to do three presentations or whatever it was. And I'm starting off this run and my heart rate is already at, you know, four beats above, you know, I'm really close to my aerobic threshold in the first mile of this run and it's an easy run. Um, and I think what this ultimately leads to, and I think where I want to get to with you today and the question we want to answer is, um, should we use this information to make decisions? Right. And if yeah. so, what do they look like? So that's what I'm really excited to kind of dig in with you today. I think one of the things that you, you talked about is, um, are we at a place yet where machines or machine learning or AI or all of these things that are coming in, can they start to understand that we're experiencing stress? And then, you know, we talk about a readiness score or things like that. Are those things worth listening to? Are there times when we shouldn't? So excited, super excited to get into this with you. I think the first thing I want to tackle though, is we got to go all the way to brass tacks, HRV, heart rate variability. What does that actually mean? Yeah. So when we talk about heart rate variability, we are basically in, let's say, technically speaking, we are going to analyze the variability between heartbeats. So our heartbeats um, at a certain frequency, we have, let's say, 50, 60 beats per minute. But this time between consecutive beats, it's not always the same. So there is always some variability partially modulated by breathing, but partially modulated by the autonomic nervous system. That's really the key part because as we face different stressors, this variability changes as the autonomic nervous system 
readjusts in response to stresses, we will have um, an effect on heart rate variability. So it's just a proxy to other mechanisms that are related to how we respond to stressors. And that's why it becomes interesting because we don't really have ways to measure in particular the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. So the source basically of this change in response to stress that we would like to capture is not something measurable, but it impacts your heart rate variability. That's why we go there and measure it there. Because as we face more stress, for example, this variability reduces and also your heart rate typically increases a bit. I think most people are familiar with the fact that when you are stressed, your heart rate is a bit higher. Uh, You can think about that in very acute stress situations. You did, I don't know, you have to do a, a talk or something and your heart rate is elevated and you feel that that's your autonomic nervous system and the stress response. In that moment, your HRV is going to be extremely low. The, the beats are very constant. And that um, aspect, let's say, of this response is something that you don't have to push to that extreme of a situation in which you are very stressed, but you can also capture it um, in response to much smaller stressors on a day-to-day basis. And that's, I would say, the whole principle behind everything that is measuring HRV and trying to build trading programs based on HRV or build readiness scores based on HRV or recovery scores or whatever they are called. Um, All of this is based on these simple basic mechanisms of this stress response. So when we think about it, right, I, I, I have enough athletes that use a whoop and things like that. We talk about variability. And so how does a, a variability score, because these things start getting into a space where I start thinking and get really scared because I think of variation, I start to think of bell curves and, a, and I instantly get anxiety, probably affecting, affecting me. <laughs> um, but the reality is, is I'll see a score of an HRV of 24. And then I might see an HRV score inside training peaks of 56. What is, what does that mean? Right. What is it? How do I interpret 24 versus 56? You know, is 56 a high variability is 24, a low variability. And then do I want high? Do I want low? Like what is, what is the desired, you know, I guess maybe not to say a desired number, but is it higher or lower on that scale? Yeah, that's a great question because when it comes to HRV, we need to basically think a bit differently with respect to all other metrics we look at, including resting heart rate, um, because we should start without basically a frame of reference. We start measuring some data. No matter the level of the athlete, before they measure, we have absolutely no idea what the data will look like. So there is a strong genetic component in HRV, which might drive most of what we call the baseline, so to speak, their typical value over months or even years is not going to change that much. The value they basically fluctuate around on a day-to-day basis. And that is not so much even linked to their performance or um, or fitness in a way that, for example, heart rate typically is. If you train, um, if you coach professional athletes, especially in certain endurance sports, they tend to have a very low resting heart rate. Obviously, there is more 
to performance than heart rate. But still, it is unlikely that um, a professional endurance athlete has a high heart rate. And it is unlikely that the regular person that has never trained has a low heart rate. But for HRV, they could actually be all over the place. So that is important because people naturally tend to compare things. And, you know, they might have a friend or a partner or ask someone else that is being measuring these things and might start asking questions. But the answer really is that the number itself, especially for people that are already engaging with regular physical activity and, you know, keep an eye on their diet and sleep and, you know, typical athlete you could think of, this baseline value or their daily value or typical values is going to be something very individual that is not so much useful in terms of the absolute value, but it will become useful only after collecting some data and looking at deviations with respect to their own history. So for some people, it could be totally normal to have a value in their 20s or in their 50s, and some people might have values that are even closer to 100. If we think about RMSSD, which is this HRV parameter that most tools uh, are reporting, and that's uh, yeah, totally fine, I would say. And then based on how this data changes in response to stressors over time, that's what becomes informative and actionable for the athlete and the coach more than the absolute values. So if I'm following here correctly, because these things can get complicated because sometimes we're in a system where we're not looking at, it's, it's a unit li- unitless measure in a sense, right? You know, you're... What you're saying is one, I think one of the most important things is that it's probably best if you're going to start measuring your HRV to not measure it during the, you know, peak of your training cycle, uh, because your metrics are more than likely going to be kind of skewed. If you're going to start measuring, is it best to start measuring maybe during the big, you know, middle to beginning of your off season when, uh, you're probably furthest from your peak fitness or does it, does it really matter? So it depends a bit on the tools you use and how they use this data. For example, with HRV for training, what we do is to always use the past two months of data to establish what we consider your normal range. So that way, it doesn't matter when you start, because even if you are in a certain phase, then a month from now, we will not be stuck with that early data. We will always update so that you always use the past two months to have an updated frame of reference. So in that case, depending on how the software is using this data, it doesn't really matter. I would say start collecting whenever you feel like you can use the data, but then um, always wait, I would say, several weeks before you want to act on this data. So it's always important to collect data for, for a certain period of time to try to basically see even just basic patterns in response to training of different intensities or going at altitude or traveling or um, sometimes, you know, unplanned stressors like getting sick or something wrong at work or with your family. There is, as you mentioned at the beginning, that was a great introduction because our capacity to handle stress is limited, right? I'm of the same school, of course. So I think that uh, everything matters and that's why these tools can become useful because these tools are completely uh, unaware of the source, it's uh, it's just going to reflect stress, no matter where it comes from. Right, and I and I think what's what's important here is that you know whether it's HRV for training or training peaks, when we're looking at metrics, you know we can't just point 
to this one thing at this very start, we, we need, you know, right. A lot of values. If you guys are statistical people that are listening or anything like that, we need data points to then create, basically, if you guys can think of it, a moving average, the more data points we have, right. The better and more finite we can be when it comes to understanding the data. If we have eight points, you know, where there's 12 and a half percent of your data in each point, you get 80 points, you get 800 points. We start to being able, be able to say, hey, when we see this pattern or we see this trend either upward or downward, we can start to say that this means something. We can start to actually let the data tell a story. And so from my standpoint, you know, I feel very comfortable getting into training peaks and I could do an entire episode with all of you guys talking about, you know, ATL, CTL, and TSB, right? Chronic training load, acute training load, and a training stress balance. And when we start to think about those, these are just moving averages that using an algorithm basically leverage an understanding of how much training stress which is a bit unitless. Uh, and I say that because it, it's not, but it is. We, we don't actually go and say, I'm going to go and get 100 TSS today out of my run. It's an estimated value that we're basically saying, if I go out and I push at this pace or this heart rate for this long, based on my baseline values that, I'm, that I've set, so again, this looks at heart rate zones or pace zones, then we arrive at a training stress score. Basically, we arrive at something that says we are scoring this workout um, and saying this, this has this much value, right? We are assigning a value to this because if we just said that you held 148 beats per minute for an hour, it, it doesn't arrive at something that allows us to put a value. So all of this is about putting value to what we do in a single time frame right? For that workout that we do. And what I'm trying to kind of show here is that HRV is a very similar, um, I guess, a very similar way of looking at heart rate variability and measuring our heart rate, because you might, as you said, you might check this in the morning. And I think one of the most important things, and I think back to the early days of heart rate training, as I understood it, what we were always encouraged to do is take our Take our resting heart rate first thing in the morning, like literally sit in bed, go to your artery and go, okay, multiply times four after 15 seconds. And then we've got our resting heart rate. Now I can do that on my watch very easily. But if my heart rate, my resting heart rate, as soon as I get up is four beats, six beats, eight beats higher, might not be the best day to get my workout in, right? I might be still recovering from that training stimulus from the day before, or maybe if I just came back from, you know, a really long effort two days before, I'm still feeling the effects of it. Even though I would have liked to have been recovered, my body's saying otherwise. And so what we're kind of digging into here is now this understanding of how often should we measure HRV if we're looking at it? Um, and really what, again, is, is that when we get that information, how do we use it to make decisions. So my question is, is how often should we actually measure HRV or how often is it measured to get the best data? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that in general, even uh, just linking back for a second to what you were saying about in the earlier days, looking at resting heart rate and trying to get this data, it is exactly the same thing. That is also important to know because there is always a new tool or something that you know is marketed a bit differently 
but the physiology is really 60 years old. We are not inventing anything or looking at anything new. I think that is important because what has changed is the way to capture these things to make it a lot easier for people, which of course drives larger adoption. But it is the same thing that we've always been doing. And in terms of using HRV instead of heart rate, I think that's just uh, quickly something that is important to highlight because why would we go through the trouble of measuring HRV, which is more complex and more, um, let's say, easier to get it wrong because of artifacts and, you know, things that could be actual ectopic bits, you know, your heart might have a palpitation or something and then the data is all messed up Um, or simply movement, you know, these optical systems we have. Well, in the app, we use the phone camera, right? So obviously you have to stay very still. But if you use a wearable also when you move around, your data is going to be uh, very noisy. So it is just more difficult to capture HIV than heart rate. And we go through the trouble of doing that because it is more sensitive to stress. And that means that if, for example, we look at the change in heart rate after um, high-intensity session, and we look at the change in HRV, typically the change in HRV is relatively larger. So in percentage terms, it's going to be a lot larger than the relative change in heart rate. That means that it can capture that stressor better. So we just published a paper last year looking at exactly these relationships between uh, differences um, in percentage in the change in heart rate and HRV following training of different intensities following other stressors, alcohol intake, sickness, um, differences in phases of the menstrual cycle. So all of these aspects were better captured by HRV than heart rate. So basically that is the motivation behind looking at that. It's just it captures these changes a bit better and that makes it a bit more useful if we want to capture what's going on in terms of stress. Then when it comes to... Yeah. No, I just can say I love that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was, it's useful, I think, to look at it a bit more systematically with data collected in the real world because we have all these old studies in the lab and then, you know, we have all these tools now so we can try to put two and two together and basically use all the data that is out there and look at these exact same relationships and replicate them but at a much larger scale. Then you can also start looking at, hey, is it the same if you are 25 and you are 65? Because before maybe they had only 10 people in the lab and you cannot look at any of this. So I think we also learn a lot more thanks to the adoption of these tools. And then when it comes to collecting the data, uh, I would say certainly if possible daily. And that means that normally you have two options. So Either you use a wearable that collects the data during the night, that could be an ordering or a whoop or other devices, but I would say these are the two um, that right now seem to provide the best data for night HRV in terms of an average of the night or a slight variation that is still very close to an average of the night. Uh, The whoop has changed recently how they do it. They had a different approach before um, that in my opinion was a bit more noisy, but right now, it's extremely similar to what you get also from Marine. So depending on your preference, I would say any of those are good um, for the night data. In alternative, if you do not want to use a wearable for a number of reasons from you know having to wear a device, yet another device all the time, the costs or whatever it is, you can also measure first thing in the morning. There are different apps. Obviously, we make one, which is HRV for training, but there are other tools that you can either use with a phone camera or with a chest strap. 
um, or with the Scosh, also we say the Rhythm24 is a good sensor for HRV, the only optical sensor that allows you to do HRV analysis. So I think that's also something that if you have it around for workouts and things, you could also use it, use it for another application. Um, and you, you wake up and you do that first thing in the morning. Typically, if you need to go to the toilet, first you do that, then go back to bed. While lying down or sitting, it doesn't matter as long as you always do the same thing. Consistency here is more important than a specific protocol. As long as every day you can do it in the same way, then pick what works for you. And then you take your measurement, even just a minute is fine. These metrics um, have been compared to longer time periods that are typically were typically used in clinical settings in the older days. And they showed that it doesn't matter really. You can also capture them in just a minute. So that's the simplest way. You wake up, take your measurement, um, and you have your data point. Of course, you have to remember to do that. So that's sometimes the advantage of the wearable. You don't have to remember to do anything. Um, but both methods, in my opinion, are valid ways to capture um, resting physiology. And then once you start collecting some data, then you can start looking at how these data changes in response to different stressors. Excellent. I think one of the big things that I wanted to drive also in this too is because people are saying, okay, this this is something that informs training or tells us in some ways maybe potentially the effectiveness of training if we think about it in terms of a long-term outlook. And so what I want to be clear to anybody that's maybe just kind of like, I don't really understand where HRV fits in the assessment protocol of things, like when we're talking, and, and this is coach to coach right now, is when we're talking HRV, you aren't going to go and set out for a run with a goal HRV, just like you don't go out for a run with a, you know, a goal TSS. You might have a, this is the predicted one. If you're using the workout builder, say this is roughly what the session's going to look like. But we're not using HRV in the moment we're to assess anything. It is not a pace. Uh, it's not, you know, paces, minutes per mile. We're not looking at beats per minute. We're not looking at, you know, watts per kilogram or, you know, speed or pace. What we're actually looking at here is when we get up in the morning, we're assessing, and I'll use that word readiness, um, are, are we ready to, to train today? And if so, it's kind of like, I think of a three light system in my mind. Like, do you have a green light today? Do you have a yellow light? Like, I need to be cautious. I need to think about this. Or do you get a red light? And your red light is, this is not a good day for us to train. You know, this is probably the best day to either take a rest day or go very easy. Something maybe like yoga, long stretch session, your body needs to recover. Um, and then afterwards, so let's say you get a green light or even a yellow light, you go out and train. And then we may measure again afterwards and say, how stressful was that singular event, right? We have that initial measurement. Hey, this was a 90 TSS run. Pretty tough. Then we're going to measure afterwards. We can measure overnight and into the next day. But more than likely, what we're going to get and see is that if that 90 TSS run was a big run for you that next day we're going to see some information that might tell us recovery day or we might get a green light you never know um if your body has adapted to that 90 tss stimulus that may not be a hard run so my question is is that for the athletes that are out there if we go and do a hard stimulus 
ride, run, swim, whatever it might be, what would then be the, the expected effect? Would we expect to see heart rate variability to increase or decrease? So that's a great question. And I think we can start framing a bit how we can try to use the data and look at these changes. Um, so the first thing I think that is important to mention uh, where people get confused at the beginning and rightfully so is that there is much day-to-day variability. So this is not something that on most days will give you the same value or, or that it will be, it be again going back to resting heart rate. On a day-to-day basis, it might be a different of one, two bits, three bits. And, you know, to get 10 bits above, you really need to be sick or something needs to be really wrong. Otherwise, it's not really going to happen. For HRV, it's different. The values can be a lot more different. And that, um, I think, is one of the main reasons why we really need to uh, interpret the data in a certain way, which is how we do it in research, but also in our app, which is basically to establish a range of numbers for an individual that we learn over time. And when the data is within this range, it's basically like nothing happened. It means that the day-to-day variability is just within what is considered normal for you. And today, maybe it's a bit lower than yesterday or a bit higher, but that is completely irrelevant because it's within your normal range. I think this is a very important um, aspect when we look at the data because otherwise, we obviously tend to compare these things. So if today I have a score and it's a bit lower than yesterday, the first thing I do is to worry, is that too low? Does it mean that I have to change anything? Should I go easier today? But maybe it's a reduction that is insignificant. It's just within the normal day-to-day variability for you. So that is something that your software needs to do because otherwise you just look at these numbers and you never know if it is lower or much lower or if you need to act on that or not so that's something um that we need to think about and that we do in the app and if you lead also the literature typically everything is compared to what they call the smallest worthwhile change is just a change basically in your data that is significant or meaningful um that is not just day-to-day variability so starting from there um, we can try to quantify what happened on a given day. And what you see in the data is your response. So if you go hard, as you said, you don't know what you're going to get because you don't know how you responded. Because if it is, was all about the stimulus itself, then it would be redundant. You already know that you went hard and you already have your TSS or whatever metric you use to quantify but it's not about the stimulus, it's about the response. So how did your body respond to that stimulus? And if you're a fit athlete in a good place currently with your training, most likely you are gonna be again within your normal range. It's not going to be suppressed because you bounce back quickly, even from a well-planned heart session that was what your body needed at that time. But if something is wrong, there is another stressor or the workout was it maybe a bit too much for your current fitness or for any other reason, which can happen all the time, then you might have a negative response. And that would mean that the value is lower than your normal range, for example. So the reduction at that point is meaningful. And that's what we try to look at 
um, in order to provide advice and use that information, for example, as I said, to either um, have a rest day or an easy day. That will depend typically on the level of the athlete, right? If you are a professional, typically anything that is easy is fine. You don't need to not exercise, right? But for other people that maybe picked up exercise two months ago and not training three times per week or four, then maybe that's a good time for a day off. Everything is always relative. Yeah. I think about this, you know, in terms of, uh, you used a word there that I really like is, is value. And I think a lot of times the value can be a very dangerous word when it comes to training, because we, we as athletes place a lot of value. If we can use this word in, in many different directions on our workouts each week, our workouts are what we, we, we say is our highest value workout. And then, then we say, okay, what is our most valuable metric? What holds the most value to us? Because if we're always hunting down CTL and trying to improve what, what we think is fitness, our chronic training load, so improving our ability to manage more stress, right? I think what, what I want to explain to people right now is that stress is, again, I can apply stress by going out for a hard run. I can incur stress by being on this podcast um, if it was something that stressed me out, right? And I would see that whether I got back from a run or finished this podcast, I would see a response from that. And ultimately what this really does, and this is where I think we start to see the world of science and training really start to intersect is inside something like Training Peaks, I can forecast something like CTL. I can, I can say that if I follow this periodization, if I build an athlete up for three weeks and I'm increasing the amount of stress that I'm giving them, then we can say that's going to provide a higher CTL or higher fitness, right? A high, so their, their ability to manage more stress is greater. And so I can forecast that. I can put that way out into the future and say, okay, if we're trying to reach this level of fitness, here's, here's the steps we have to do. Now, here's the reality of the situation is that life doesn't work in this nice, neat, linear pattern. So now we start to think about, well, then where does HRV fit if we just have to hit these TSS markers? Well, then now we start talking about optimization. And instead of just saying, you know, Wednesday was our planned hard day every single day in this. Well, if you incurred a lot of stress Monday or Tuesday of each of those weeks, maybe that's your dip most difficult day it might make us, and this is where we start to get into the decision-making part of this discussion is Wednesday may not be your best day, right? Because your HRV is the lowest then, and you need to change that. So this is more about now we have a secondary marker for what we call, I guess, better decision-making. This is a tool that helps us make better decisions and not just say, this is what I've always done. Can we actually squeeze out a little bit more by making better decisions that are kinder to our bodies and avoid, you know, all of this, you know, I guess regression that can happen in training if we overtrain, um, or we push our bodies too hard too often. And we're not getting as much as we could from those workouts because we're under recovered. Um, so I just wanted to kind of make that statement because I think we're always trying to get more and people yep. start having more wearables and more things. And it's like, the best tool is the one that you actually use to make decisions. And exactly. that's where I think a tool like HRV is very important because this becomes a decision-making tool. And I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of chat through anything and digest what I've said there. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds great to me, and uh, I think that's exactly why we try to look at these things um, from one angle. Talking about you know your periodization, I think there is something important there. You know, as a coach, obviously, you start from there, right? You you have a right. plan, you build your plan. Um, but many people sometimes that get uh, closer to these technologies maybe don't have a coach, and some of the maybe the biggest misconception is that HIV should drive all your decisions. And that would mean, for example, that every day that your HIV is good, you go hard. And then you do that until your HIV is not good, basically, right? because you synced it. And then you rest at that point. And then maybe it's already too late because you have already created a lot of damage. So HIV should be used exactly as you were mentioning, basically to add a certain level of flexibility to understand when you can apply the harder stimulus, when maybe you should change things around a bit and reduce the intensity and manage the stressors better, but starting from a plan. That is always very important because uh, HIV, again, provides a response. And ideally, it should always be within your normal range. Like when everything goes well, you HIV does not tell you anything. <laughs> that is the best part. So if everything is going exactly according to plans and your manager stress well and there is no unforeseen issue, um, then your numbers should always be within your normal range. And that's just uh, confirmation that the process is good and everything is going well. Then obviously that is typically not the case for one reason or the other. And, uh, you know, the periods of months or sort of things happen. And then it's helpful to keep an eye on your body's response to make some of these adjustments and switch around workouts or even at a larger scale, if you end up in a period which is not just a single day suppression because yesterday was a tough day, but maybe it's uh, spring and you have seasonal allergies or other issues that really take you down. And then your baseline also, so your moving average and everything will be lower and lower and lower, even for periods of weeks sometimes. So at that point, you know, you might want to switch even entire training blocks or just to do things a bit differently because your body is not in a good place. And hopefully that does not happen or does not happen frequently. But there are, let's say, different ways you can use the data at different time scales depending on what happens and uh, what are the changes. Yeah, I think you brought up something there that was was a really interesting way to look at training that I think kind of goes against the the norm. And I'm by no means saying that this is how you train athletes. But right, if you said, I'm gonna train because my it's that my score is great and I am gonna train until my score is not great. So I'm gonna go hard until I get a response and then recover. And I think for some people like, Oh, wow, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it is that, you know, go until you get a response. But the reality is, is that all that creates is a very large spike, a significant drop off, and then this long time period of recovery, and then a high training load and, and recovering from it. And while that can get some initially good results, maybe someone that is very undertrained, you start to think about the longer end of the spectrum where to get you know a result like that to do that kind of training at a very high level for a professional cyclist or a professional runner um 
my goodness, you're going to start running into issues with the endocrine system and all sorts of stuff because of how much load it might take before you see a response. And so this is where that idea of periodization of why we have hard days, why we have easy days interspersed in between them allows us to kind of take this gentle pattern and that if we're living inside of that HRV range, that good range for us, our very personal range, then we're knowing that our training is being effective. It's when we start to see these fall-offs on either side. So if you guys imagine a bell curve, if we're you know all the way on one end of the spectrum or all the way on the other end of the spectrum, that's when we really need to say, something needs to change here. Either I need to apply more load and my body can handle it so I can increase my training load, or my training load is too much and I need to back off. And so I think HRV becomes a metric then for to measure in a way uh, that value, that effectiveness of saying, hey, this is very, this is a way that I adapt to training because my HRV stays inside this constant, these two bumpers, right? These, this is kind of like bowling where it's like, you've got bumpers and as long as it goes straight and it doesn't go off into the gutter or five lanes over, you're good. So stay inside your range and that type of training that methodology of whatever it might be that works for you. So keep doing that. And then what we try to do is say, how much training can we put into that before, right? That's when we start to really see things go off instead of training until we get a response. It's different. It's not as dramatic. It's like, Oh, we're starting to see these things change and they're constantly going up and up and up. Okay. Back off. Right. So I'm just, what I'm trying to kind of give for people is I think the way that you framed that was, yeah, what if we just trained until we got a response? Well, we'd also train until we're broken. And that's not, that's not the goal of training. The goal of training is to get a, a stimulus, provide a stressor, adapt to it and overcome it again. And so I think that this is really starting to kind of nail into why is HRV important? HRV tells us if we are adapting to the stimulus that we're providing. It is one of our first markers other than something that is that is very hard to nail down, which is how do you feel, right? That is something that we'll, that a robot will never understand, an AI, an algorithm. It'll never understand how we feel. But when we have something like HRV, we can secondarily assess that, man, I feel tired this morning. Well, what's my HRV, right? And then it says, oh, I've got a green light or I'm inside my, my boundary. I just... I got to take some time to wake up this morning, ease into my day versus train or no train. You know, I think that's, this is what we're starting to get into is we're starting to get to the point where maybe down the road, 10, 15 years, we'll have a better grasp of how do we feel as humans? How do we then perform that day? Um, I think that's such an, such an interesting way to look at, at training, but also interpreting the human side of training. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And these aspects should be combined, right? So the data can allow you maybe to capture some of these changes um, with better timing or sometimes even to learn how you can tune also your, your feeling, the way you assess how you feel in response to different things it's not something that is easy for everyone um i think you know as a coach probably you've seen all sorts of athletes that even during training some are very good at managing the intensity without using technology others might need uh, more help and maybe over time they become better by first maybe looking at 
their heart rate with respect to their pace or power. And then slowly RPE and you know, perceived effort becomes more natural also to them. Like the technology is just an aid to understand a bit better what is happening in our body. It should not be something that we use to replace or not think about how we feel the opposite. So it should actually make us think harder when we think, when we see um, a suppression, for example. And, you know, maybe is it something there that is wrong or how am I feeling? And all of that, I think, should all go together in a way that we can use the information to do better decision making at the end of the day, which is um, what matters the most. Yeah, absolutely. I think these are all all guidances um, when it comes to to training. Um, so I wanted to actually talk real quick as we kind of close things out here. One of the things that can happen uh, when it comes to more data, we start to, in some ways, the psychological effect is if I don't see myself inside this range before race day or things like that, we may go, oof, I'm not going to have good performance, right? And that's a, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast on the psychological impacts of, you know, your Garmin readiness score or whether it's telling you you're peaking or it's productive or unproductive. But when it comes down to it, what if things don't line up on race day and things aren't happening? Does that actually mean that because, um, you know, my readiness score is low, does that mean I'm not going to have a, a good day or is it just that there's a greater chance of not having a good day? So let's have two conversations here. One about uh, the actual physiology and the readiness and recovery scores and everything that is built on top. And the other one about how um, the physiology can change on race day. So for the recovery and readiness scores, because that I think this needs to be mentioned because most people that use these tools will not maybe even look at the actual physiology where you need to find it somewhere, you know, in some manuals while what you see first is this readiness or recovery score. So my recommendation in general is to disregard completely <laughs> these readiness and recovery scores. And I say this for a simple reason that I think people can, can understand easily, which is these scores are not how your body responded. These scores combine different um, signals and not only signals, even just uh, other information that is available, for example, how much you slept or how much you trained yesterday and then combine this information in a readiness score. But that means that it confounds basically your physiological response with your behavior. So if you sleep less tonight and yesterday you had a big day out, you have a lower score. It's just the math. The score will be lower. And then when you look at that, you have actually less information than what you would like to have if you just had the physiology. Because what you want to know in that case, especially in that case where you did maybe a bit too much and you did not, not sleep enough, what you want to see is how your body responded. So just the physiology, your resting heart rate and HRV, if they are within normal, that is fantastic. It means that you responded well and that type of stimulus still, still was okay. And, you know, especially if you're in a block where you have many days of that because you're in a training camp, that, that becomes useful. Well, if you look at readiness or recovery or lower these scores, they combine different parameters in a way that you don't really know if the suppression comes from your body not responding well or the fact that simply your behavior was different. 
So I think there they try to put things together to add value, but eventually there is less value than just looking at the physiology, which of course you contextualize with your behavior. You want to know why the changes are there and what was the activity, what was sleep, but that is context. I think it's different from putting all together in a score. Um, so in general, I would tell you know athletes and coaches try to focus on the physiology, and the rest is I would say an experiment <laughs> that these companies are doing, trying to figure out also what works for different people, what works for an athlete is not what works for the regular person in terms of this course, but in fact they are the same. There is no athlete mode. It's just the same that you know uh, my parents would get if they were a whoop and an ordering, right? So it doesn't matter um, what you're doing. Uh, and I think that's that's something always to realize that not to give too much weight to this course and try to look more at the physiology. Now, if we do look at the physiology, I'm oh, sorry, if you wanted to add something. No, I was, I was going to say one of the things that I think is really key here in your discussion is that we talk about a behavior change. And I think the, the behavior change that, you know, most people are thinking, oh, did I change how I was training? I think of taper. And I think taper is one of those places that inside a training cycle, we have the largest behavior change, right? We go from a very regular training cycle to now we may have more rest days and we may be uh, you know, decreasing the frequency of intensity. We're decreasing our total overall mileage. But also inside that, we also, if we were to look and say, oh, our readiness score the, the night before race, how many people that are listening right now sleep amazing before they go and race? Exactly. Not many. Right. So if you're basing this on your readiness is based on, and the heaviest weighted metric in that is hours of quality sleep in the REM cycle. I'm sorry, but before my Ironman, uh, before my, you know, most recent marathon or half marathon, I got woken up before by the fire alarm in, in before the Austin half marathon at 3am. I was up for an hour and a half and I had a great performance. My performance was not indicative of my, probably if I had a readiness score, I don't wear a whoop, I don't wear a ring. But if I were to look at that, it would probably tell me I wasn't ready to go. And so that already starts to tell a story for me in my brain, like, yeah, I didn't sleep that well. And some of those, sometimes those metrics can be, you know, they can do bad things for us. But more so my point here is that the behavior change is that we're tapering. The behavior change is that we're recovering more. The behavior change is that training has changed. And so we should expect to see some sort of result, right? There should be something here. And so what is that something if we can quantify it? Should we look to see that maybe we fall outside those boundaries or are we looking to stay inside that ideal boundary that we talked about because that taper is the right taper for us? Yeah, I think that's a great question that does not have... Um clear answer. What I mean is that these uh, moments, race day, even taper, are basically outliers, right? Because they are not frequent. You're not going to race so frequently and everything changes <laughs> that week. There is, you know, the change in training you mentioned, but then most likely you're traveling somewhere and then uh, you have race nerves or whatever is, you know, making you overthink everything that happened in the past three months. So all sorts of things happen. And in literature, what we can see is that it is more frequent than not that during that phase in which you would expect maybe 
your HRV to be in a better place because you're training a bit less, typically is actually going the other direction. So a reduction before a main event has been reported in multiple studies without any issue in performance. So if you see those kind of changes, I think it's difficult to pinpoint them to an exact cause. But there can be what I think the, the main message is there can be a, an abnormal change, a reduction or anything like that. And that would be totally fine because it's such a different moment. And on race day, uh, even more so, right? Because again, sleep is going to be probably the worst night of the week, <laughs> the day before you're racing. And you probably you wake up at a time that is very different from your typical wake up time. Everything changes also there. So my recommendation typically, especially for people that um, tend to get maybe a bit uh, too influenced by these kind of things is not even to look at the data. Like in our tools, we have also a modality where basically you can still collect the data because maybe it's interesting to look at it after the fact sometimes, uh, but then you don't see it. So it's not going to influence your um, race day. And I think sometimes that's the easiest. You just don't want to mess with um, your head and numbers can always do that otherwise. Yeah. There's, there's nothing that quite replaces trusting in your training. You know, there's no, there is no perfect thing that's going to tell you that you're ready. I think more often than not, yes. people want to shove off and say, Oh, I need something to tell me I'm ready. <laughs> and on a race day, you know, your, your, your watch isn't going to cheer you on, you know, it's not going to help you dig deeper. Uh, the reality is that all of these metrics are, are more or less, they are just slight adjustments to the compass of a coach or of an athlete in terms of the decision-making leading up to an event, leading up to that pinnacle achievement. And so I would say even the week of, it's worth seeing it and going, oh, that's information. But it's, it's, it's kind of shifted once we get close to an event, because at that point, we have the fitness that we have. And so what do we know to be true? Well, what hasn't changed is having a good diet, getting a lot of sleep and, you know, the mental and, and psychological side of these things is mentally preparing for what you're about to go through and things like that. There is a certain amount of stress that's going to happen there, but when we're tapered down and we're not having as much stress from a physiological sense, that psychological stress, that pointed stress on race day and things like that, that's what we're also tapering for. And that's also something I don't think people give a gap to is how hard is this going to be mentally, right? Um, yeah. And so when I think of HRV, HRV is a course correction. It is a course corrector to help us make better decisions in the 11 weeks leading up to a race. But the week of, it's, it's information that is best, I guess, utilized after the fact, to say, how effective were we in our taper? How did you respond to the travel? You know, did we, are there things there that we can tweak for you, right? If an athlete forgets half of their kit or, or their luggage didn't arrive, we're going to see a spike, right? We're going to see uh, an acute stress moment. And so it's like, well, maybe we change and everything that we need for our race day comes with us in our carry on. You know, those are small decision makes, decisions that we might make, but it's like, why was our HRV the way it was? Why are these things showing up? And so again, we have not arrived at something that's going to tell us that we are ready to go, that we are ready for a peak performance 
other than still feeling like we're ready for one, because I don't know about you, but even for me, there are certain days where I wake up that I might've had a hard day before and I go out for an easy run. I'm like, I feel amazing. And I can't pinpoint it to the meal I ate, you know, how well I slept other than I'm in a good mood and I had a good day. Like I'm having a good day. I'm enjoying this. And there's nothing that can make a good day happen. Um, And so we're still bound to, to that part of our training, right? Yeah, I agree completely. I think you know, biology and physiology, everything is very complex and so many factors play a role. That is absolutely true that we cannot just look at some of these data points and say, okay, this is going to be a great day or this is not going to be a great day. And, uh, you know, looking back to the very first things we said about absolute values not being particularly relevant, that becomes um, important again also for this as an individual level on race day you do not aim of having your HIV at a certain number or your HIV having increased through the months to a certain number that you were aiming for. It's never about that. It's, as you said, course correction is about adjustments. It's about managing stress during training. All those months that you were preparing for this, you can use the data for better decision-making and adjustments. And then, um, yeah, towards the end, I think also it's more of a, something that you might be curious about after the fact, look a bit at what happened and depending on how it goes. And if you see consistent patterns when you race, you know, three, four, five times, um, and you can maybe then at that point say, okay, I can associate certain trends to certain performances, but that's never something you can do the first or second time out because there are always so many factors um, and the individual response is something we cannot figure out in advance. So something for later. Yeah. I think what ultimately this leads to, and kind of my last point here today is that using a tool like HRV for training or just measuring your HRV in general, it creates a more fluid training environment where you are open to the understanding that, you know, I think in days before when you may have just followed a training plan and said, today is six miles, tomorrow is a hard workout, and then six miles and six miles. Now it's looking and saying, okay, I I ran six miles. My HRV is telling me that I'm I'm not as recovered as I'd like to be. I'm outside of my boundaries. I might need another easy day before I go and do this workout so I can perform optimally. And so what measuring HRV does is it allows you to create a better dialogue, whether that's with a coach or with yourself in understanding that fluid environment that just because last week you did your workout on Wednesday and even though our bodies love rhythm, you may not be fully recovered because of an outside source of stress and so, or getting sick or things like that. And so this creates a fluid environment where we now have one more way to assess, are we ready to go? And are we going to be able to get the most out of this workout today? Or if we wait a day or two days. And so this fluid environment that we create is really about optimization. All we're doing, and I think all of the wearable tech to kind of bring this back full circle, is optimization. It is not to elicit the uh, ultimate and greatest response in the moment. It's about how do we shift, right? And how do we be flexible and adaptable to what's actually happening? Because the real world changes. The real world isn't six miles workout, six miles, six miles. It's about 
how do how can we get more information and use it to make better decisions? So, Marco, I I know we could probably talk through like <laughs> ten more things around you know why is HRV amazing? Why do more people need to utilize it? But what I also wanted people to be able to do is I've enjoyed following you on Instagram. Um, you know, you post uh, pretty frequently about these sorts of things, as well as you're doing research and you're doing a lot of other things to help make not just HRV for training better, but trying to make HRV something that more people can get their hands around. So I wanted to give you a chance here real quick at the end to kind of talk about uh, a little bit about the app, uh, as well as talking about where you can be found. Um, so shout it out. Let's hear it. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> so HRV for training is a very simple tool that allows you to measure your HRV arresting physiology without requiring any other sensors and is validated with respect to chest straps and full ECGs, the reference systems for measuring cardiac activity. So you can, if you have any doubts about if this technology is for you or not, or I'm just curious about trying anything that we've discussed today, I think that could be an easy first start, easy start as you have just begun. You need your phone, install the app, and start measuring tomorrow morning. You don't need any wearable or anything else, and it could be a nice way to try to see how your body is responding to different stressors. That's what we do. I work also with Aura, which is um, selling a ring to measure physiology in the night. And in general, I try to be open and collaborative with other companies and people looking into these um, technologies and aspects of physiology, because ultimately, I think the more these tools measure the same things and communicate similar aspects um, of what is being measured and analyzed, the better it is for people. It is less confusing, let's say, um, if these kind of tools start to agree on what they are saying instead of the opposite, which has been a bit the history of HRV and looking at all sorts of different metrics and things. I think slowly we're getting there, so I'm, I'm happy with the progress of the past few years. Uh, I am mostly active on Twitter, I would say, this day. That would be at Altini underscore Marco. Uh, website, marcoaltini.com or hrvfortraining.com. Um, yeah, any questions or anything, guys, I always try to be responsive. So always feel free to drop me a line. Excellent. Marco, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, you're joining me from in the, in the evening time here, morning time for me, uh, all the way in Italy. So, uh, much appreciated to take the time and sit down and talk with me and, uh, look forward to having you on again in the future. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, coach Andrew Simmons here. Thank you for tuning into this episode of defining endurance, the podcast from lifelong endurance. Do you want more information and content between shows? Follow us on Instagram at lifelong underscore endurance, as well as on Facebook. You can also check out our YouTube page for more running and strength training tips. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to seeing you guys next week.